You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Gordon Peake. I'm the Senior Advisor for the Pacific Islands at the United States Institute of Peace. And I'm delighted to welcome you to uh, a webcast event on examining regional security in the Pacific Islands. So good afternoon if you're in Washington, D.C. Good morning from Thursday morning if you're on the other side of the dateline in uh, the Pacific Islands. I want to begin, before I, I hand it over to our real all-star panel that we have, by sort of trying to sort of lay the table and make some, uh, some framing remarks, which is in the last year, the United States has been paying more attention to the Pacific Islands, including by rolling out its first ever Pacific Islands strategy in 2022. And just this earlier on this week, President Biden welcomed leaders from the Pacific Island Forum countries to the White House the second time in two years. I did some sort of research prior to, prior to this, and it was at only the administration of George H.W. Bush that was the last time the Pacific leaders had been uh, as regular visitors in, in the White House. Indeed, as someone, so it's the, and as someone in the Pacific Islands told, told us a few months ago when we were traveling there, it sometimes feels like this is the first time since the Second World War that the United States has been paying as much attention to the Pacific Islands. And in that war, the Pacific was a theater for great power competition. And it's tempting to transplant that, that lens to what is happening today. But the big difference, of course, is that what were then uh, shuttles or colonies of, of the great powers are now proudly independent nations themselves. And as one of our guests, Maureen Penjueli, uh, observed, uh, if it's about us, this conversation, it must be with us. And so we're lucky to get today to be joined by four people who've got great experience uh, uh, writing, thinking, and advocating um, about the facets of the Pacific Islands. And we've also got a great geographic spread. So from the, sort of going from sort of north to south, we have uh, Kenneth Cooper from, from Guam. Uh, we have Tekoa Te Yuta from Kiribati. And to, uh, and to my left here, we have uh, Tarsisius Kabotokala from, uh, from Solomon Islands, you know, based in Hawaii, and Maureen from Fiji. And what we want to do in this conversation is to give our guests sort of five to seven minutes to ask them, sort of provide some obs framing observations, and then what we'll do is we'll open it up to uh, conversation. We're also we're speaking on the USIP YouTube channel, and we encourage anyone who's listening online to feed in their questions uh, to us, and we'll try to address as many of those questions as possible. So I want to begin with uh, Tekoa uh, from, from Kiribati, a place that is getting more and more attention is all sort of framed in terms of, and often framed in terms of great power competition between, uh, between the United States and China. But yet, as you were observing uh, to us on the walk down to this event, Often the security needs at, a, at an everyday level in Kiribati are very, very different from sometimes the preoccupations um, of, uh, of people that are in capitals far away. 
Thank you very much, Gordon, and um, good afternoon. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on this um, very important um, panel uh, discussing this important topic. Yeah, like I was saying to you, Gordon, and to the others, um, people on, I used to work with government for um, 30 years or more, and then in the last five years, I've been out working with the people. And my observation now that I'm outside of government is that the ordinary people on the street, they, they, their understanding of security issues are very, very different from what we understand at government and in our discussions with our development partners and now other countries from the Pacific. Um, climate change is impacting a lot on the lives of people. There are health issues because water is affected. The, 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 the food, the very little food that we can provide is getting um, scarce. And so those are some of the issues that we face. But people are mostly import, um, in, in, interested or worried about how do they put food on the table. Just um, a few days ago, I think it was Monday, um, my government, my president, my, my government signed a, um, a threshold program with the United States through the Millennium Challenge Corporation. And the focus was on trying to improve the accessibility of our people to enter international labor markets. And that is mainly because we have a very young growing population and unemployment rate is very high and sustainable. So we want opportunities for our young people to go and find jobs abroad. So that is, to us, is an to the ordinary people is a, a security threat. What if we don't, our young people don't have jobs? Who will put food on the table? What will happen to us when we get sick? Who will provide the medicine, the medication that we need? So it's, it's very different from how the security issues are um, perceived, I guess, from the side of the United States government authorities. We do have China. I think we are one of the last, the most recent Pacific Island country that had China come in. We switched from um, Taiwan back in 2019, I think, yeah, if I recall. And with the, uh, the Chinese coming in, there's been a lot of um, visibility, you know, on what they do. Then the US came, Japan came, they all wanted to establish embassies there. So there's been a growing interest now from our Traditionally, we just had to work with um, Australia. And like what you mentioned a few minutes ago, that all was one of the very important and great battle sites in World War II, where a lot of the US um, um, Marines lost their lives. But that's practically what we remember. So it's the older generation that has a memory of that. The younger generation don't really know about the US and so now that things are beginning to pick up, there's more interest in, 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 in our country. I'm, I'm talking now more from the national perspective. What we want is very different from what probably the Americans and the Chinese are interested in. We want development so that we can achieve our um, aspirations, economic aspirations. And so to many of the um, people on the streets, when we talk about military security and things like that, they say, what's going on? They say, though the Chinese are not good because there, will be a, there, there might be a potential conflict with the US and the other traditional allies like Australia, the power setup. And they say, what's going to happen? Why are they going to be interested in bombing or, or, or you know, 
um, uh, dropping missiles in, on us. We don't really have much. What we are interested in is how do, do, like I said, how do we put food on the table? So security issues in Kiribati is very different. The understanding of the people on the streets is totally different from what people in governments might have and people from outside the country also have. So that's basically yeah. my opinion. That's great. that's great, and I think it's a really good way to way, way to open it, and also these almost different ways of seeing the world that there is, and where, where you sit, where you stand, or where you sit depends on what you see, um, as well. So just to turn to, to Kenneth as well, who's sort of up in Guam and up sort of adjacent to the freely associated states of, of Micronesia, uh, and to the, to, to the freely associated states of sort of federated states of Micronesia, Marshall Islands, and Palau, and Guam itself, which has its own unique position within the United States. It'd be great to get your perspective of, um, on issues as well, because Guam has, has gone, I think, from being a little bit like Kiribati in a way, something that was maybe not mentioned that, that much to being something that's ever more frequently a kind of beat in conversations about Pacific security. It's one of the biggest US bases. It is the biggest US base uh, in the region. So great to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, day, everyone. Um, I'm Ken, glad to be here. I think when it comes to Guam, you know, there's, there's something that I notice about the Freely Associated States, Guam, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, which are right to the north of us, is we, have, we live at the intersection of human security challenges and traditional security challenges. And I think that's something that we have to face. You know, um, there's that term charm offensive that's being, that's being used, right, all over the media in regards to what, you know, the U.S. engagement in the Pacific. But in fact, if you look at Micronesia, it's not just charm, it's, it's military, right? And so we don't, while there are human security challenges, the geopolitical doesn't go away for us in sort of the American-affiliated Micronesia. And so I think that the largest problem is when the U.S. military becomes perceived vehicle to solve both traditional security challenges and human security challenges, because then it doesn't allow much diversification about uh, what the U.S. military's role is in our sort of sub-region of Oceania. And that becomes, there's a caution to that, because when we start viewing the United States military as the deliverer of goods, both from a traditional security and a human security perspective, well, it becomes a lot easier for the U.S. military to engage in its, in its own agenda. Now, there are partnerships that we could have with the U.S. military, but what we've seen in Guam is that, well, Guam is a modern-day colony of the United States. We convince no words about that. Um, and so from our perspective, geopolitics in Guam, we're sort of forced into the framework of seeing it as, seeing China as a persistent, everyday threat, right? We're put into that mind. The reason why we have to build 360-degree missile defense of Guam. The reason why we have to put radar systems in Palau is because of what's going on with China. And so our whole sort of, a lot of times, I, I wish we had sort of where everyday politics is almost divorced mm -hmm. from geopolitics, but it doesn't operate like that in Guam, neither does it in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, where the governor is now shifting tourism away from the People's Republic of China and more going towards US military affiliated tourism, right? And so that's the framework that we operate in in our part of Micronesia. Um, and so when I think about regional security, I always think, is there an escape, right? Is there a way out of sort of having a militarized form 
of, well, what should be diplomacy, a militarized form of what should be aid, a militarized form of our connections and our relationship with the United States. Is there a way out of that? Or, as Robert Rogers said, who was an historian who wrote one of the most canonical Guam textbooks, um, even though it is problematic in many ways, Destiny's Landfall, is that our, are we destined for this? Is this, are we just a pawn in the realpolitik of great geopolitical powers? And I think often I find myself wondering what an alternative future looks like for our sort of part of Micronesia that doesn't get put into the geopolitical logics of now US-China frame. Mm. What comes next? And I'll, and I'll give you an example of this. We went to sort of the comments from the Missile Defense Agency. They had a scoping period in Guam. And they, we asked, what if there wasn't China? And, he, and the, the officer point blank looks at us and goes, well, it'll be good for the next threat. So is that the way that we have to think about our usage of Guam and our part of Micronesia? Always preparing for the next threat. Are we the place, if security is sort of protecting threats to your most cherished values? And if we look at security as having three components, number one, that which is threatened, right? The response, the threat, and the response to the threat, a lot of times Guam and Micronesia, we aren't the thing to be protected in my estimation, we are part of the response repertoire to protect the United States. And so our security is often not, um, how, how should I put this differently? I don't think it is true that what is good for the United States security is necessarily good for Guam. I don't think and I don't believe that United, what's good for United States security is necessarily, to use Reagan language, trickle down to Guam. I think there are moments in time when it's more zero sum that what is good for the United States security often comes at the price of Guam and other parts of Micronesia. I'm not saying that it has to be the case all the time, but when those moments do occur, we in Guam, we in the freely, you know, you know, in this part of the region, I'm not from the freely associated states, don't pretend to speak for them, but at least we in Guam, we should address that because Guam security should come first. And we need to resolve the tensions and sort of the contradictions that happens when US military needs tend to be put first and prioritized over what is good for Guam security. And so I know that's a lot. I'll leave it there for further oh, that's, comments. That's terrific. It's funny that you say that about you know, the next threat. I read a book about, about a couple of months ago. It was written by someone who's kind of slightly date me, but a gentleman called Willard Price. And I remember him as a child. He wrote these sort of books about uh, adventures and kind of different parts of the world, but he wrote this charming but disturbing book um, uh, about his journeys in the Japanese Pacific that was then, uh, uh, was not Micronesia, um, Marshall Islands, and in Guam. And he talks about how everyone in Guam in the 1930s were talking about the threat of the Japanese. And it's an example of, just as you were speaking about how this persistent, the threat may change, but yet Guam's perceived role in that is the same. And he goes and meets US military people and they said, oh, we're really worried about, about the, the Japanese. And I'm sure maybe if, you know, if we went back in a time machine to the 1970s, 1980s, we'd be worried about the Soviet Union as well. So it's a good reminder of how the kind of ironies and the beats of history. Um, I want to turn to, um, to Maureen from the Pacific Network on globalization. Maureen, we're sort of meeting on Wednesday uh, here 
in the last couple of days, the, the, the White House summit has concluded with the Pacific Islands Forum. There's been statements that have been uh, released. I think we all watched um, the kind of opening remarks given by uh, President Biden and by Prime Minister of Premier of, of, of Cook Islands. It'd be great to get your sort of thoughts about what's in the statement, what's sort of not in the statement. Um, you know, what, what, what's, your, what's your sort of reading of the situation from a Fijian perspective and from a sort of regional perspective? Uh, thank you, Gordon, and Nisson Bulavinaka, everyone. Um, I wanted to just really focus on President Biden's statement, and in particular, his last sets of words. And I want to just quote from it, um, because I think it's quite useful to look at it and to tie what Gordon you said in terms of framing, what the ambassador said in terms of this mismatch, constant mismatch, uh, perceptions about what does security mean in the Pacific. Um, so just, uh, so he said this, like our forebearers during World War II, we know that a great deal of the history of our world will be written across the Pacific over the coming years. And like them, we owe it to the next generation to write that story together, to do the hard work together, historical work, right? And he quotes General MacArthur, for which a better world for all will come. He goes on to say that's the objective here of the US Pacific Summit. So today, let's recommit to that goal. Let's recommit to each other because with the past as our proof, we are stronger and the world is safer when we stand together. And when you look at that, those final statements, it, it, it's quite stark in terms of the referencing, particularly of World War II, the big narratives of the time around peace and security for all the Pacific theater of war. The statement really reflects, and you see where the US places its emphasis, which is on veterans and remnants of unexploded ordinance as its markers of history today, right? But for many of us in the Pacific today, that is not what we remember. What we really remember is a totally different peace, an era of peace a time when the US and its allies, particularly British and the France, tested nuclear weapons across the Blue Pacific under and during imperial rule. I think that's very important to acknowledge because the fact that it's not even referenced is clearly uh, differentiating points of view about past history and what does it mean about moving forward together. A very good starting point would be for the US-Pacific uh, relationship would be to start with a public acknowledgement of this period, this very dark period that our people uh, experience and continue to experience. Our people still demand for not just an acknowledgement but also an apology of this dark period beyond remnants and veterans, unexploited ordinance and veterans. And I think it's really quite clear that if you look at the outcome statement, the fact that the negotiations for the final con uh, compact of free association with the Republic of the Marshall Island remains outstanding 
And that is quite a stark reminder of what a joint history and a joint future might look like. I want to be very clear that when we look at the, our histories today, obviously many of our countries are independent. But since 1985, our forebearers from the Pacific have been sending a very clear message to the world, and that includes the US and its allies, that the South Pacific is a nuclear-free zone. And it's very critically important that people recognize that um, as, the, as a cornerstone in terms of security, particularly when you're talking about conventional and traditional security across the, the region. In addition, during that time, and insistently our countries are now having to say again, this whole alignment, non-alignment non movement, and friends to all, enemies to none. That's the cornerstone of the Pacific's nuclear-free zone. It runs counter to the US and its allies in terms of conventional. And it, the Pacific has been persistent since then to further through Boe Plus Declaration and obviously into the 2050 um, strategy to articulate what is a Pacific security narrative, which today makes climate change the most critical security threat that the region's faced with. And at the heart of that, it's about locating human security of our people, not the expansion of US military, industrial military within the Pacific. And I think the Rarotonga Treaty is, is, is always a good reminder to our partners when we're talking about security. Although we do recognize that Australia, in particular, a very good friend of ours in the region, have left the door partially open um, to allow for the movement of nuclear-powered uh, vessels um, across the Pacific. And through that, it has enabled AUKUS to come into front and center around security, something which goes against many of our countries, uh, independent countries' real wish at that time and still insistent today. And so I think that if we are indeed to work hard together, do this really historical work together, we need to see real proof from the United States. We need to see real evidence of what does that mean when these contradictions or differences in understanding of security beyond conventional security in our region. So when you look at the litmus test right now in terms of nuclear security, the Fukushima case is the case in point. Uh, the South Pacific Treaty really prohibits the dumping of radioactive nuclear wastes in our part of the world, but the green lighting of the IAEA by the United States gave the Japanese government the go-ahead to start dumping 1.3 million tons of radioactive wastewater over 30 to 40 years into the Pacific Ocean. We need proof that if we are in, indeed to be together, there has to be a demonstration of the US on some of these more difficulties, partially because the Fukushima radioactive wastewater dump will threaten the economic livelihood of many of our countries. The perception of nuclear contamination of fish fisheries 
which is our economic lifeline, is a real threat of which the Japanese government or the IAEA will take responsibility who will compensate the Pacific in the event of such a catastrophe. And it is a possibility. Mere perception of contaminated fish from the Pacific. So I think that there is quite a lot of work that we need to see. And I think there's a real danger that, particularly with the overpromise around aid budget, we had the announcement from last year. Uh, a lot of people are looking at it to, to see that actually a lot of that hasn't come through in terms of real money coming through to the Pacific. So I think there's a real caution here about the promise, over promise of aid into the Pacific, particularly when you consider the context of debt. And many of our countries are debt stressed. Um, they are looking to grant an aid as, as, as mere access to fund infrastructure uh, across the region. Um, and so I think there's a real danger that we will put all of our eggs in the one basket that the US will deliver on many of those promises. But I think it is just the beginning of our working relationship. As you said, it's been a very long time since the Pacific has come back into Washington. But perhaps our political leaders can try to leverage as much as they can, because we are um, from the region, we are very clear about what does security mean, and we have cornerstone frameworks and agendas that it would be good if our partners could learn to understand it and also to respect it. Thank you, Maureen, and, and, and for bringing up this really important issue of kind of the nuclear ghosts that are sort of in the, in the, in the Pacific. I mean, I'm thinking of that line, I think it was William Faulkner who said, the past is not yet past. You know, it may be past for, for, for people here, and there's, and there's, there's a, a number of people that are in the room that are a lot more qualified than I am to talk about the nuclear legacy in places like Marshall Islands, um, but also uh, in Kiribati uh, as well, and in the kind of French Pacific too. And it, it, one of the things that really struck me about the sort of what you were saying is almost there's sort of, we're all speaking the one language to each other, English, but we're almost, almost speaking in such different languages that we're not sort of hearing each other. So something maybe I'll sort of put as a question for you to think about and we'll talk about if time allows is, how do you actually get these different conversations in the same room? How do you actually form, structure a conversation so, you're, so that we're not actually saying, well, you're talking about militarization and I'm talking about human security. How do you actually meld it and kind of blend it, um, blend it together? So thank you. Thank you, Maureen. And last but not least, we have uh, Tarsisius, um, who you know, must feel ever more popular being a sort of Solomon Islander and asked about your country as being ever more a kind of part of the kind of geopolitical sort of tip of the spear, maybe in, in, in a way. You know, the Prime Minister of Solomon Islands um, and the Prime Minister of Vanuatu did not attend the, the summit, uh, returned to Honiara, Yesterday or today, and sort of said, "Well, you know, I'm not really, wasn't really, wasn't really sure about it. You know, didn't think there was any value in it. Mentioned the issue that that Maureen did about um, about about funding issues, which I think gets to another issue of confusion about the role of Congress, which is such a different different setup here to uh, to how Pacific Island countries work, or even the United Kingdom, where where I'm from originally. So it'd be great to get your thoughts, Tarsisius, on." Solomon Islands place in, in this kind of emerging sort of security space 
um, and about questions about the militarization and also about Tekoa's point about um, about how the human security issues are are there too. Over to you. Uh, thank you, Gordon, and good well afternoon, Loretta. Thank you too much for Gary Miller here. I was scared you would ask me about the Solomon Islands. I was hoping you wouldn't. Uh, but yes, the Prime Minister Solomon Islands mentioned on Radio I'll Australia. I'll get into trouble if I didn't mention it. So <laughs> was mentioned on Radio Australia yesterday that one of the reasons why he was reluctant to come to Washington, D.C. was that you know, the U.S. tend not, not to deliver on the promises that, that it's made. And as you, as you say, this is difficult because sometimes, you know, it, and that making this in comparison with China, where a lot of the decisions can be centralized and therefore move quickly, whereas here in the U.S., domestic politics, and particularly the need to go through Congress sometimes makes things really difficult. But I'll come back to the Solomon Islands issue again later. There are a couple of things that I want to reiterate from the previous speakers. The first is that the most important security issue for Pacific Islanders is human development. And if our development partners from Australia and New Zealand or the US can help Pacific Island countries address issues that are daily concerned for Pacific Islanders, then they would be able to address the bigger issues of geopolitical competition as well. And to a certain extent, people see that as coming from China because they're visible, as the ambassador said, that they come in and do things that are quickly visible, although often not very sustainable. And in the longer term, could also create a lot of problems as well. And so thinking through the development issues with Pacific Island governments and Pacific people, I think is fundamental to security in the Pacific Islands. That's the first point I want to make. The second is to reiterate you know, something that Morin mentioned. The US often references its relationship to the Pacific Islands vis-a-vis -vis World War II. And it often makes me cringe because the narrative from the US is often that World War II was a war of liberation, that the Pacific Islands were liberated, particularly from Japan, through World War II, and therefore the US was a liberating power. But there is another side to that narrative as well. Second World War gave the US the power to colonize certain parts of the Pacific, and therefore use the Pacific as a site for things like nuclear testing. And that's not a positive narrative for the US. And therefore, using the Second World War as a reference point for US-Pacific Island relationship is old-fashioned and, I think, dangerous. And also, on top of that, as Morin mentioned, places like Solomon Islands, World War II continues to kill our people through unexploded ordinances. And therefore, the memory of people today about World War II is a weapon that never ends, to, never stops killing. And so I think it's very important uh, that US leaders and US public servants bear that in mind. So it's, and that moves me to another thing that I wanted to mention, is that the post-Second World War period resulted in increasing militarization in the Pacific. And the concern about the current geopolitical competition is that we are already seeing an increasing militarization again. 
we see it through you know, the increase in the deployment of Marines to places like Guahan or Guam. Uh, the talks about establishing uh, uh, relationships with Palau that would see you know, some kind of US military presence. Uh, of course, the six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers stationed in the Northern Territory in Australia, uh, the Lombrum Naval Base uh, in Papua New Guinea, AUKUS, and other things that are happening in the Pacific. The other point I want to make about increasing militarization is that in cases where we do not see physical military presence, there is a danger of an increasing militarization of Pacific Island police. And we've seen it in the case of places like Solomon Islands, not only by Western countries, but by China as well, that a competition for having access to domestic security institutions such as the police could increase the militarization of those police, which for us raises a question. If we are to militarize our police, who is the enemy? Mm. Uh, and oftentimes, as we've seen in the Pacific context, where we have military or we have an increased military police, we've used it domestically. Fiji is a classic example of the coups from 1987 up until 2006. In the case of Papua New Guinea, the Papua New Guinea Defense Force was used, to, used most in the case of Bougainville. So increasing militarization of domestic security institutions, I think, will backfire on the kinds of security issues that we have in the Pacific. Sorry, I kind of went away from the Solomon's thing. You did a very artful job of, not, of, of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of the prime minister's non-show, or should we try to open it up into a, into a conversation? It's, it, the choice is yours. We'll come back. We'll come back to it. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, what, the one thing that theme that sort of I'm thinking about in my mind throughout this whole thing is just almost everyone's speaking English in this in this conversation, but we're almost just speaking such different languages. You know, you've got the language of of human security uh, at one at one level. You've got a sort of language that that is focused on sort of legacy issues and kind of broad sort of human security at one level, and you've got a militarized language. At one level, and I guess the sort of question for you collectively is, we, and we also have so many forums presently where, whereby Pacific Island governments and the United States, but also other, other, other powers sort of get the opportunity to meet each other. So you've got the meeting that happens on Monday and Tuesday, you've got the Pacific Islands Forum, you've got APEC you know, for, 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 for some Pacific Island nations. I'd love to get your thoughts about, is what's the best mechanism to kind of have these conversations? Because it sort of sounds like they're all dancing around each other, but no one's actually getting together in the room and sort of having them out. What's, what's it, is there a forum that would be useful to, you know, to have that? Because they're such diametric, they all use the word security, but they're such diametrically different um, accents placed on the word security. Let me, let me jump in and then yeah. others can, yeah. you know, for me, and, and I know that not every Pacific Island places, or not every Pacific Island is a member of the Pacific Islands Forum. But for those who are members of the Pacific Islands Forum, I think the 2050 Blue Pacific Strategy 
is a good place to begin. Uh, and because it's a collective uh, document, it's a collective effort by Pacific Island Forum countries. Of course, that then excludes places like Guam uh, and, and looking for you know, other avenues through which countries that are not member of the forum can be part of. Yeah, and then maybe it gets into the, I mean, you, you, you and I are both from sort of an academic tradition and of, of getting people to read what's already been written and said and kind of voiced already. Um, sometimes it's easier to kind of overlook it rather than to, than to do that in the kind of Boy Declaration that talks a lot about frames issues in terms of kind of human security, yeah. human security yeah. as well. Look, I, th I think the Pacific is really clear in terms of expanding the notions of security, as I said, from nuclear into climate into human security. And they've done it, and all of our documents are referencing documents. I think the point of contention is that our development partners, there is a sense of amnesia that, they, they, that when we are talking about security, for Pacific Islanders, we know precisely what security we're talking about. So I mean, it was good to see, at least in this outcome statement, the referencing to two very critical initiatives led by the Pacific on climate change, which is on maritime security, borders more specifically, and also uh, the support for countries uh, in the context of sea level rise uh, and you know, the possible disappearance of countries. So I think it takes a lot of effort to get partners to pay attention to the Pacific. But I think the litmus test for me always is how then will the US in its commitment to climate uh, security for Pacific Islanders, what does that mean? beyond some of the kind of um, legal expertise and capacity building that they're offering. What more can the US do to demonstrate the commitment in the climate arena and around climate security? But I think the burden constantly shifts to Pacific Islanders. We are constantly having to say, and I'm always surprised at how much we have to say to development partners consistently, our people want clean water, food on the table, access to jobs, that's security for us. Um, but just have to go constantly at it. And I think there, there is something fundamental about all of our partnerships right now. Everyone talks about listening, deep listening. I've seen it in the, the Australian um, um, uh, approach to, to the region, and I've seen it in the US statement. It's all about deep listening. But really, is there deep listening when we still have this Asymmetry. I guess it's the difference between listening and hearing, or hearing and listening, and it kind of brings us to the kind of observation that we began with from you, Ambassador Yuto, about how, you know, in the streets of Tarawa, the, the conversations are are at an, at, an, at an everyday level, and they're not susceptible to these kind of great sort of you know chess pieces being moved from one place to another. They're 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 structural. They're sort of institutional. They're their relation to kind of things that are not, things that you can't necessarily send a troop of people to sort out or an air traffic carrier just to sort out or, 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 or do training about necessarily. Yeah, um, again, from a, a perspective 
that's um, limited to Kiribati, but I think it applies to most of the Pacific countries, is that we're getting good vibes now from our development partners, you know? We are willing to listen, as opposed to previous um, um, decades of coming in, we know the solution, we will solve this, this is the problem, we will solve it for you. Now there's coming up this um, um, trend that we are willing to listen, we are willing to be partners rather than coming as um, um, <clears throat> aid providers and, and being your, your liberators, if not from military security, but human security issues. There, there's this, po but I think there's also good, um, good development in that. Not on, only are our, our development partners willing to listen, but they are also willing to say, okay, you lead the development, you lead the process, you know what your issues are, you already have some ideas on how to resolve these issues, so we are willing to, to listen and to give you the leeway to, for um, country-led, locally-led development, you know, if that's the proper word. That's the, 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 the fad now, especially with our Australian called, um, 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 partners. And I think that the U.S. is also saying, speaking the same language, you know. We are willing to listen, we are willing to work with you, and we want you to lead the process. So when it comes to security issues, like um, it has been mentioned, listen to what the local people, what the people on the streets see as um, security issues. Because at the end of the day, it is those people who elect the government, you know, of the country. And it is the government that we, the other governments have to talk to. So the, the governments that are elected into power will be speaking the language of the people who elected them. And the governments of different countries in the Pacific listen to what their people need, what are their everyday problems, what are their everyday security issues. And this they will bring to the negotiating the tables with their um, the, 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 the development partners or the, the world powers like the US, Australia, and, and, and also they will be discussing with China. And when we made some reference to China, China, when we used to be an ally of um, part, um, yeah, we had allegiance with um, um, China when we first became independent. And then in the late um, 1990s, we switched to Taiwan. And there was a negative perception of people about how, the, how China was. But now that we switched back to them, personally, I'm one of the people who's very surprised because they've changed their approach. Although what they are doing it's not always sustainable, but they are there, they respond, you know, and people um, accept, you know, they like to accept what they believe will elevate their living conditions. They may talk about sustainability later on, but they are there and they are willing to work with us and they are willing to help the people. Um, the Australians, when the, 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 the US was not visible in the Pacific Island region. The Australians that tried, worked with the Pacific Island countries, but they were sort of, what would be the proper word? They, they sort of remained aloof, you know? They gave assistance, they gave advice, but you could hardly see them out on the streets or in the communities. Now there's a change. I'm, I'm working for a, an education improvement program um, funded by the uh, DFAT, and Three, four years ago, they donated some things and said, we want, you want us to, to put a logo on this um, furniture? And they said, no, no, it's okay. Just give them low profile. But since the Chinese came, the Australians have been very active in their, in their um, 
well, yeah, yeah, and the, the, and, and the um, communication strategy, you know, they, they want to be seen and then they, and they want to be visible also. And so people are now surprised and they say, oh, these chairs are provided by the Australian government. The same chairs that are sitting close by, they were provided by the Australian government five years ago, but nobody knew that they came from from the Australian government. But now there's a competition and people are beginning to notice all the things that we are receiving from the Chinese, the school furniture, they are rusting, you know? they are corroding very quickly. They, 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 this is what we want quality. And so that's coming into play now. And I think that's what, um, in terms of addressing human security, there needs to be visibility, there needs to be um, engagement with the local community, with the people, and, and, and it, it has to be a mutual partnership also. And, um, yeah. so it's almost like the sort of benefits of, of the competition in a way. Um, That's right. You're, you're, there are risks, but at the moment, I think um, my people at least are enjoying the benefits of the competition. We need to, to be able to, 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 to take advantage of how we can use this competition to our advantage. Because if we are not careful at a later date, and I don't think it's going to be very far, we are going to be drowned in the level of competition that we won't be able to, to you know, we don't have the absorptive capacity to be able to deal with what is being offered to us. Yeah, I mean, I think it was in Solomon Islands and Samoa, I read, where the, the two governments sort of issued a, separately, but issued a, a, a circular that said, you know, no more missions to come over the next two months because we're engaged in our budget process. And it kind of gets into the, the issue about not so much absorptive capacity, but simply and there's only enough time in the day to deal with, with lots of people coming, coming in. So we've got some people in the room here. We're in, a, we're in front of a very cavernous room with about 10 people in it, but we've also got a lot of people that are, that are watching online. So I'd invite anyone that's in the room, I'd invite anyone that's sort of online to, um, to provide a question and to direct who you want the question to be, to be answered. Uh, too. So I'll give, the, I'll give the privilege to people in the room rather than the people who've, who are online. We've got about 10 minutes, so I'd ask, your, I'd ask you to um, try to be succinct in your questioning, and I know our participants will be uh, concise in their answering. So we'll take the two questions and then we'll take the ones online. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you, everyone, for your presentations. I guess. My question is, and we've heard, you know, we've heard a lot about the Pacific. The Pacific sees climate change and how the Pacific sees things, and I would agree with everything that you've said. I guess I'd like you to maybe Tara and maybe Maureen or anybody who wants to reflect on what we know are uh, pre-existing and emerging rifts within the Pacific leadership and the Pacific collective and how they might affect the, this conversation about collective security. Thanks. The gentleman there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, Michael Kovrig from the International Crisis Group. Uh, I'd like to ask the one of the things that the United States has been talking about around this summit is its uh, desire to support and strengthen the regional multilateral architecture for the region, so the Pacific Islands Forum, but then also other regional mechanisms. I, I would like your views on what those organizations or forums or institutions what are the most important things they currently do, and what are they not doing that you would, that if they were in fact to become more effective, stronger organizations, what would the people of the various island communities want them to be doing? Okay, great. So we've got a question about rifts and sort of differences sort of between um, Pacific, uh, Pacific Island nations. Then we've got one about strengthening regionalism and how do we, um, how does one go about doing that? Who wants to take either one? <laughs> I'll take one. You take one. Um, I think, you know, we were facing micro-nexit, as they called it, <laughs> at one point. Um, and so, you know, I think if, you know, coming from Guam, we're unseen by the U.S., but we're often unseen by the Pacific as well. And I think Micronesia, the other freely associated states have felt that too in certain ways. Kiribati, Nauru in addition. And so that could have been a cleavage that easily could have been taken advantage of, mm. right? I remember at the time, even amongst sort of US strategic and diplomatic circles, like, oh, how do we take the Northern Pacific and form more a sub-regional organization outside of PIF that will be sort of a really supported by the United States government? Uh, how would we do that if they exited, right? And then others were saying, oh, China will use this to their advantage. And so I think sort of the, the RIF micronexic is an example of a cleavage that could have been exploited Right? So that's the problem, is that geopolitical competition has the ability to exacerbate current rifts, as, as you mentioned, and that's one prime example. I'm glad that it didn't end up going that way, um, but I think we in the Pacific need to make sure that we prevent any of the self, not externally imposed hierarchy of Polynesia, Micronesia, Melanesia into the way that we operate as a, as a region. You know, I, I'm a huge believer that we need to uh, listen to the words of Apelia Ulfa all the time, yeah? So I'm a self-described Haolfian, and I think, you know, our sea of islands needs to stay together, even if that's, but how do we do that is the question. And how do we prevent that unity from, from being exploited by great powers who would take the opportunity to do that and run, in a heartbeat, would run away with it? Just to add to, um, to what Kenneth said, I, geopolitical competition have real impact both domestically or at the national level, as well as at regional level. And those of us familiar with the Pacific Islands will know that collective diplomacy is very important to the region. Uh, and because of the nature of who we are, it is absolutely vital that we work together. Uh, but we are seeing rift in, in the Pacific, not only in the case of the five Micronesian countries threatening to leave the Pacific Islands Forum, well, Kiribati did for a little while, <coughs> but came back. But also on addressing issues like Fukushima, for instance, uh, something that you've seen different Pacific Island countries saying different things. <coughs> and perhaps that's not directly due to geopolitical competition, but it does have an impact on the ground. Another example is Solomon Islands. So the, the rift that we've seen in Solomon Islands between the central government and the Malaita provincial government, 
who have been able to use the China competition with the West to create a huge division domestically. And, and a lot of the politics is actually domestic, but they've used geopolitical competition to express domestic politics. Thank you. And we've got Megan, who's our, my colleague here at the United States Institute of She's got some questions that have come from the internet somewhere. So Megan, over to you. Yes, so we have two questions. One is from Alfred Schuster, who's asking what benefits might there be for PIF to open up membership to all Pacific Island countries and territories in light of geopolitical competition? And then Trisha Smart is asking, I hear that each of you express concerns in various areas concerning securities. What would you say could be a commitment to you by the US? Could you ask the second question again? Yeah, so uh, Trisha is asking, what would you say could show commitment to you by the US? Okay, so I think that's a really, that's a, Trisha sort of stole the, sort of my concluding question. It's like, what, you know, what, is, the, what is something that would be a sign of uh, commitment? Um, you know, we've heard a lot about, about sort of different, for very understandable reasons, Pacific Island nations say, well, the narrative, not really sure with this narrative of the second world war, but once bitten, twice shy. On this, what would be something that would show, um, would be a kind of tangible sign of, of, of commitment? Would it be, would it be the 25th, would it be kind of embracing the Boy Declaration? What would it be, Maureen? I mean, I think it's, it's um, thinking through a lot of the questions around regional architecture and the reform. Um, it would be really good if our developed partners, um, particularly as we've seen the rift, this, this coming back together. And as Tara said, it is the most difficult thing to hold regional solidarity right now. Um, and the regions work really, really hard. But we see this real push, particularly for membership expansion. And I think there's been some troubling aspects to that. One of the <laughs> things that's been discussed by policymakers is that the membership of the forum should be and restricted to sovereign countries at this point. And we saw what happened when, when we had, and particularly because foreign policy and defense needs to be in total control of what, is, what we understand as sovereign countries. But it is a very um, difficult discussion in part because we recognize our indigenous brothers and sisters in territories that are still under colonial rule and still want to be part of the forum. How does the forum grow um, in a safe way, both for those that are full members and that? So I think there's, there's still avenues that we have to think through that may need to be reflected in a new reform architecture uh, that really looks at how to relocate um, and I think that it would be very important. We've seen in West Papua, the case of West Papua, what happened at the Melanesian Spearhead Leaders Meeting and how that issue, but this is still an issue. So I think these this cornerstone issues, nuclear legacy, self-determination, aspiration, political self-determination, aspiration in our region really have to be part and parcel of a reformed regional architecture. Um, but for now, the membership questions really are quite contentious, and the way it plays to um, the kinds of development partners' agendas can be quite 
destructive to regional unity. Um, and we've seen it on a host of issues. So I think there's still a lot of work in the region. Um, as I said, in terms of original institutions, we have a plethora of frameworks, strategies that anyone can look at. But there is some real concerns that we need to really support and reform regional architecture. I think the key phrase that anyone can look at, I mean, they're there and they're available. And I'm glad that you, you mentioned the issue of West Papua and the Melanesian Spearhead group. And it gets into it something I think would be a stimulating discussion if we had any more time, which is about the sort of potential new states that are, that, are, that are in the region. You've got Bougainville independence, you have sort of a Chuk independence movement as well. But we're going to have to put that on for another time. Thank you to everyone in the room. Thank you to our four, you know, just wonderful, um, incisive uh, panelists. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. And um, thank you once again. I hope this, this was the first but I hope it's not the last time that we, that we get you all, all together. It's great to be in the room with, with you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.